Well, good morning, church. So exciting to celebrate Easter Sunday with you guys. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. That is a saying that goes back to Luke 24. The two on the road to Emmaus as they come into the upper room. They're with the disciples and they said, the Lord has risen indeed. Now, I want to encourage you in your homes, if you're with somebody else, to look at them and say, the Lord is risen. And then the other person responds saying, he is risen indeed. Go ahead and say that now. The Lord is risen. And I want you to say it now with me. I'm going to say the Lord is risen. You say the Lord is risen indeed. We'll say it three times. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. Hallelujah. I just think we have just connected in a sense historically with Christians for the last 1600 years who have used that greeting for one another as they say that statement in Luke 24 to one another. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And you know, the thing that I think about too is this Sunday, this Easter is more similar to that first Easter than probably any that we've experienced up to this point in our lives. Because that first Easter was celebrated in a home. It was celebrated in a house. The doors were locked. People were afraid to go out. In that case, it was because of Roman uh, persecution. In our case, it's because of a coronavirus, that, uh, the COVID-19 virus. And we think about the fact that, that we are more like in our homes alone, uh, a, a little bit afraid to go out, thinking about what Christ has done. And yet we're celebrating something significant that our Lord has risen. And this is not an insignificant day. It is the most important day in the Christian calendar. Every other day hangs on this one. And in fact, uh, I read a comment just this morning by a Scottish preacher, James Stewart. He said this, we have been inclined to regard the resurrection as an epilogue to the gospel, an addendum to the scheme of salvation, a codicil to the divine last will and testament. But then he continues, this is no appendix to the faith. This is the faith. He is risen. He is risen indeed. The apostle Paul concurs with this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said that if the resurrection didn't happen, we are people most to be pitied. But the resurrection did occur. And we're going to hear the story of the resurrection, the account of the resurrection read by some of our students out of John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have lain him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying there with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had, not, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. 
Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I love this passage that our students just read, John chapter 20. There are a lot of proofs to the resurrection of Jesus Christ found in this singular text. One of the things that we find is that we have an empty tomb. Uh, did the light just w went off? Oh, I'm just uh, technologically challenged, folks. I, they had a light on me and then the light went off. So uh, as we look at this passage, we have an empty tomb. And this empty tomb is significant because the empty tomb here uh, must be accounted for. So the disciples, did they steal the body? Well, if they did, all the Roman soldiers had to do was to produce the body and that would have changed everything. Uh, but they weren't able to produce the body. The disciples would have then died for a lie and they certainly wouldn't have done that. When you think about how they different uh, ones died, Bartholomew was apparently flayed, Thomas was speared, Peter was crucified upside down, Paul was beheaded, John was boiled in oil and yet somehow survived and died of old age, Jude was axed. You think about all these different ways that the disciples had um, been impacted uh, by their testimony that Jesus rose from the grave. No one would die and go through those kind of cruel deaths without somebody recanting, without somebody saying, no, it really didn't happen. We have proof, at least from the way that these men died, that they believed that Jesus rose from the grave. We also have the testimonies of different people. Mary was the very first one to, uh, to show up on the scene and, and, and her witness is significant because in a court of law, a, a woman's testimony was not valued very much. And yet here, the early church uh, or uh, the, the gospel writers, as they write these things, they focus on Mary as the first witness the most important witness at that point. And so here God values this witness of this woman, Mary, and, and it's incredible. And I think about how uh, some would say, well, the early church fabricated this story in some way. And that certainly couldn't have been. The early church was not even able to gather to be able to modify the story to clear up some things to make things read easier uh, they, they they didn't have that opportunity for 300 years and so as these books were being written and as they were being copied and distributed among the churches there was no way they could have recalled all of those copies we would have at least some evidence that 
the text had been changed and we don't have that. And so you look at that and you look at the fact that this stone was rolled away. Amazing thing that the stone was rolled away with the uh, Roman guards. You have these Roman guards that were there and the Roman guards were, were, uh, uh, would have been uh, awake and alert. Their lives depended on it. And so to have the body stolen by the disciples would have implied that these disciples somehow snuck past the Roman guards, moved a heavy stone and made all this noise, moving the stone against stone. And then they took time to unwrap the body, came out, and then they went past the Roman guards again. That's not even a likely story, not even a plausible story. Thomas, who said that he wouldn't believe unless he saw Jesus, unless he stuck his finger in his side and stuck his finger in the nails holes in his hands, wouldn't believe. And he died preaching that Jesus rose from the grave. Besides the fact that psychologically to go from grieving to joy in three days just doesn't happen unless something happened that changed the outcome of what they were grieving about. They were grieving his death In three days, they were joyous and excited. If you've ever gone through the grief process, you know it takes months, it takes years, not three days. And so something significant happened. The resurrection from the grave of Jesus Christ makes the most sense. That's why I love John chapter 20. All that evidence is there in that text that was read and as you read the context around it. And so we have a risen savior. Everything points to that. And as I think about how important a day that is and and what uh, the purpose of all of that is I think well one of the purposes of the resurrection is to demonstrate and to prove that Jesus did die for our sins that in fact his death did mean something because he has power over death he has power over the grave and so his death meant, meant something significant in that regard and you look through the scriptures in regard to our salvation and that's uh, powerful but it also, there's one other thing that, that uh, 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 many other things, but one thing that in particular that I've been thinking about a lot the last couple of weeks, and especially looking at Jesus as the bridegroom. In fact, as I looked at the last supper and, and revisited some of the things that he said, he says, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 18 of Luke 22, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And I was thinking, what did Jesus have in mind? Because he's talking about, he just talked about this, this cup is the new covenant in his blood. So he's saying, I am dying in order to enact this new covenant. But then he's saying, when the kingdom comes, I'm going to be sharing this cup with you. I'm going to be sharing the next cup, the, the next, the cup of praise in the Passover meal. I'm going to be sharing that one with you. And you think, what is he looking ahead to? He's looking ahead to Revelation chapter 19, or at least the event that John records in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the lamb. And it says in Revelation 19 and verse seven, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. 
So that is something that, that is incredible when you think about the fact that Jesus may have been looking forward to that event, that he was looking forward to that uh, occurring, this marriage supper of the Lamb, this time when he would celebrate with his bride, the church. And so he had that in mind when he was with his disciples. I was reading a commentary on uh, Revelation 19 and, and, they, and, the, and one of the comments he said is, this John must have had in mind Psalm 45. Psalm 45 when he was writing these words. And I began to look at Psalm 45 and I thought, I think Jesus may have had Psalm 45 in mind when he was writing these words. In fact, I think that Jesus had in mind Psalm 45 when he was talking about the bridegroom and the bride. Every parable that he told about the bridegroom and the bride throughout scripture, I think he had in mind the, uh, the, uh, 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 this, this Psalm 45. And so I want you to turn with me to Psalm 45 so that we can look at it together. Psalm 45 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that points to the Messiah. It's also a, a royal psalm. It's a psalm that points to the royal wedding of, this, of a son of David. And in fact, it was a song that, uh, uh, that was uh, probably played uh, every time a, uh, for a royal wedding. This would have been a significant psalm written by the sons of Korah, that group of, of people that, that um, uh, were selected as the worship leaders of Israel. And they wrote this love song. And it's a beautiful love song. And at first you think it's just about a king and his bride. And I think that they use that in that context. But we know from verses 6 and 7 of this psalm. That it's talking about more than just someone, any king of the line of David. It's talking about a specific king of the line of David. And that, that is in, in verse 6 it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There's a lot of theology there. And in fact, one thing that many have looked at when they've looked at that phrase there, it says, your throne, O God, they're thinking, well, he's referring to uh, the throne as being a divine throne, not as the king as being God. The trouble with that interpretation or understanding is if you go to the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about this, uh, this person that, that is referred to in Psalm 45. And what it has to say is that um, this person is Jesus Christ. And in fact... It says in the beginning of Hebrews 1, 1, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And then he begins to talk about the significance of his son, the significance of Jesus, how Jesus is greater than the angels, how Jesus is high priest is, is greater than the high priest, that, that Jesus is, and it just goes through the book of Hebrews, a, a way to remember that book is Jesus is better. He is better than, and then fill in the blank. And here he's talking about better than the angels says, for which of the angels did God ever say in verse five, you are my son today I have got begotten thee. Or again, I will be like a father to him and he will be a son to me. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. 
Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. But of the sun, he says, and here's the quote out of our Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so the author of Hebrews is saying this is talking about Jesus in Psalm 45. This is focused on him. This is focused on him as God, the king who, be, who is God, the king who is, is forever and ever, the forever king, which is Jesus. And then he talks about the scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. And I think about that kingdom idea in the context of this Psalm 45 and I think about what Jesus said when he talked to his, um, his, his disciples and he, he began to tell them parables. And in one parable he tells them, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And, and, and he tells about the bridegroom and the bride. He says uh, in, in Matthew 25, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took up their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took the lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took the flask of oil with their lamps as the bridegroom was delayed. And so there's this idea that this bridegroom is coming again and he's delayed and he compares it. He says, this is the kingdom. The kingdom is like this. And I think, was he thinking about Psalm 45 when he told this parable, when he says, talks about the scepter of your kingdom, the kingdom is like this. It's like a bridegroom and a bride. When you look at Psalm 45, the first half of the psalm is talking about the bridegroom. Second half is talking about the bride. And then the last part of the psalm is a benediction. And so here is Jesus as God, King as God. And in fact, it goes on uh, in this, in verse uh, seven and says, therefore God, your God has anointed you. And you think, wait a minute, I'm sure that that had to confuse early readers before Jesus when they say, what do you mean God, your God? I thought there was only one God. There is only one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This wasn't teaching the Trinitarian God, but it was allowing for that Trinitarian God to be taught in the New Testament. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. He says, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. So those must have been what they were anointing them with, pouring this oil, and it was running down their head and down their beard. We see that image in the Psalms with Aaron. And it's running down, the anointing oil running down and gets on their clothing. And so their, their clothing is fragrance with this myrrh, which was an anointing oil that they used for the tabernacle. It was an anointing oil that they used for the, uh, uh, for the, uh, 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 the priest whenever they became priests. And so you looked at this and you realize this is focused Upon this bridegroom who is going to be anointed, who is king, who is God. And that's why the author of Hebrews said, this is Jesus that it's talking about. It's a messianic psalm. Well, you go back and you look at a little bit of the character of, of, of the person in Psalm 45. It says, grace, it says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. That's verse 1. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. I can't wait to write these things. 
And it says, you are the most handsome of sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. So here's this idea of someone who speaks grace. Someone who speaks words of wisdom, words of grace. Of God's riches that are given freely by God. That are, that are spoken freely, words of grace. It says, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, almighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. This picture of the one who has the ability to bring peace. The one who has the ability to bring prosperity to the nation. And here's Jesus. He's the one. He's the prince of peace. And he has the ability to bring and control that peace. He's, he's not only full of grace, he also is full of power. And then it goes on. It says, in your majesty... Uh, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. And those three things, thinking about Jesus who, when he said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And also you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And that truth is Jesus. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have truth. And it's these that tell of me, uh, John says in John 5.39. And so you look at that and you think, wow, Jesus is this one who is truth. He is truth in its essence. And then you also see meekness. Humble and riding on a donkey on Palm Sunday. This humble leader, not an abusive leader, this humble leader who is full of truth, who is truth, who is the one who brings peace, who is the one whose lips speak grace. It's this one that he's talking about. It's the one who is righteous. I think about this righteousness of Christ and how significant it is for us that we have Christ the righteous. That what he did for us brought righteousness to this world through his death. It says, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And then it says, your throne, O God. The passage, the part of the passage that we read. He goes on and, and, and says, uh, begins to address the bride. It says, hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. And so she must have been a Gentile. If it was forget your people, it wasn't the Jewish people, and so she must have been a Gentile. And so here, the, the king is, is, has a Gentile bride, and that fits so well with what we talked about last week, that God loves the world, for God so loved the world. that And, and when Jesus, uh, on the day, on Monday, as he casts out the money changers, he's, he's, he says, this place is a prayer, a place of prayer for all nations, God cares about all the nations. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he, talks, he tells them to, to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so here we have this picture of forget your people and your father's house and the king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord. Bow to him. And I, at, at that point, I almost started thinking maybe I need to, to go on and talk about the bridegroom some more and maybe skip this part of the psalm. And then there was something that really hit me really strongly out of that statement. The king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord. It's this picture of this beautiful wedding picture of, 
of a bridegroom who's in love, so in love with his bride that, that he can't take his eyes off of her, that he's, he's, he's enamored by her. He loves her deeply. And I was thinking about that image and I was thinking about how deep and profound a love that communicates. That our Savior doesn't just love us because he has to. It isn't love like we love the world and we, we help people that are in need and so we, we reach out to them and we're emotional with them. It's like the love that we have for our family. The love that we have and that's perfect love that you desire with a spouse, that you, you have that kind of love. When, when God is talking about his love for us, for his bride, which is the church, not us individually, us collectively, together as the church, God loves his church. And he loves her so much, he compares it to a bridegroom and a bride. And I think, wow, what a significant and powerful love that is. That's not just some ordinary love. That's not just some platonic love. That's not some casual love relationship. He's talking about an incredible deep love. And when you plug that in, the for God so loved the world. Wow. He loved us that much. He loves us that much because he is alive. We talk about his, how he loved us. And as Matt talked about, you know, sometimes it's easy to think about, oh, he loved us this much, died for us. Uh, and, he, and he's going to take us to himself. Yeah, what about now? He loves you right now. You are dear to his heart. We collectively as a church are near to his heart. So much so that Jesus Christ died on a cross while we were still sinners, while we were still pushing him away. He proved his love, loving us when we're pushing him away and he's loving us still. That's the kind of love our Father has for us. That's the kind of love Jesus has for us. That's the kind of love that the Spirit has for us. God in his Trinitarian nature loves us deeply. And then it says to basically worship him. Says, bow to him, worship him, because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who is God forever and ever. And at the end of the psalm, it says, I will praise you forever and ever. This is the time when we realize the incredible love that we fall on our knees and go, oh, wow, how he loves us. Oh, wow, how he loves us so deeply so powerfully, he's so in love with us that he compares it to a bridegroom and a bride. In fact, the Apostle Paul says uh, to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians uh, verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And he's talking about the whole church of Corinth, and he's really referring to the whole church at large, the universal church. I betrothed you to one husband. He led them to Christ. And it's that betrothal period, that betrothal period in, in ancient times. You were legally married. You waited a year before you actually had the ceremony and, and moved in together. And so there was that year period when you were in waiting and we're in that betrothal period. We're married to our Lord. We're, we're betrothed to Christ. We are married to him and we're waiting for that moment when the ceremony is going to happen. And John talks about it in Revelation 19. 
And that's what Jesus was looking forward to when he was talking to with his disciples on that Thursday night at the Passover meal. And he's saying, I, I long and I desire to celebrate that with you. He can't wait for that time to occur. He wants to be with us. And it's not just a then. It wasn't just a yesterday. It's now. He wants to inhabit the praises of his children. He wants to be a part of our lives. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Well, he goes on in the psalm and, and talks about the people of Tyre will seek favor with your gifts. Tyre was a very wealthy place. The richest of the people, all glorious is, is the priceless, uh, the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many color robes, she is led to, to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness. They are led along as they enter the palace of the king. And I was thinking, I think Jesus had this image in mind when he was telling these parables, when he was, when he was celebrating this last supper with with his disciples when he was looking forward to what John describes in John in Revelation 19. And then he has this benediction in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. And I think wow. It just leaves me silent. It leaves me speechless. When I think about who my king is, what he has done for me, how much he loves us. In Isaiah 61, he picks up on this bridegroom idea. And it's a familiar passage talking about Jesus. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant all who mourn in Zion, to give them the beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And then we'll skip ahead a little bit to verse 10. And it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts. And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. And that is in Christ. And so I look at that, at how, the, how the scriptures throughout talk about this bridegroom and bride idea. And I think that Jesus, on Thursday night, the night in which he is betrayed, I think he had in mind Psalm 45. It wasn't this, that he was just going to raise from the dead and then, okay, everybody wait around and he'll come back. No, he's, he's waiting 
and preparing a place for his bride. And we as his bride are looking expectantly for him to return. And so it impacts our every day. That every day we, we speak of him, that we know that the, that the bride is still, uh, that the church is still growing and the church is still, God still has in mind those who have not received him yet. And maybe you're there, maybe you're one of those today that has never received Christ as your savior. He's longing for you, he's desirous of you. Coming to know him, he's tugging at your heart, listen to him. Respond to his, his offer of salvation. Respond to his, uh, as he pops the question for you, to be part of his bride, the church. Because he died for you and he died for me. And as we contemplate his incredible love that caused him to take that step, we have a video that I want you to watch here that talks about his love. There exists a love far greater than we will ever understand. A love prophesied for ages. The Lord Jesus met with his disciples on Thursday. And on Thursday, he wanted his disciples to remember what he had done for them. He wanted them to remember that he had, was getting ready to die on a cross for their sins. 
And he knew they wouldn't understand. And, and so during that time, he, he, during that Passover meal, he takes time to explain to them what he wants them to begin to do from that day forward. And that was to take two simple items from the Passover meal, the unleavened matzah, which I don't have, I just have a cracker, but it is unleavened. To take the matzah that was pierced for our transgression, that had the stripes for our wounds, uh, for his wounds that were for us. And he broke it. Did a simple act that they'd seen a hundred times, thousand times. He broke it. And he took and he began to pass it around and he handed it to them. And he said, this is my body. He didn't mean it was literally his body. It was figuratively his body. It was not something they had to do to receive Jesus because he was sitting right there in front of him. It couldn't literally be his body. Figuratively his body. He said, this represents my body. This is my body, which is for you. It's for you, not for anybody. It's for you. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. During the Passover meal, they would fill the cup four times based on Exodus chapter six. And they would, they would take and the, the I will statements out of six and, verses six and seven, they would, they would focus on a different aspect of the Passover meal. And Jesus, after supper, it says, he took the cup and he would have filled it. They would have watched him fill it another time. And this cup, the third cup, would have been the cup of redemption, the last cup, the cup of praise. And he took this cup and he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. The new covenant of Jeremiah 31 talks about, not the law, now it's a covenant of grace. He says, not like the one which was your forefathers. He says, the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are looking forward to that day that he comes. We are looking forward to that day when our bridegroom arrives and we as the bride, we as the church are waiting for him, looking forward to that arrival. And until then, we're found doing what he desires for us to do. We're found busy about the Lord's work until he returns. And yet we look forward to that turn as his bride, waiting for our bridegroom, Jesus, who died on a cross for us and rose from the grave so that we could have life eternal. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you that Jesus Christ died on a cross for us. We are so thankful that his death and his resurrection changed everything. It enacted the new covenant. It brought about grace. It brought about forgiveness of sins. It, it brought about justification. It brought about righteousness. That he was the one who propitiated your wrath. He appeased the wrath of God. 
and satisfied his wrath. Father, your wrath was satisfied. Your justice, your sense of justice was satisfied in Jesus. Thank you for that. So that what was due to us was placed upon him. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you so much for dying in our place. And we praise your name. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're so glad to have you here on this Easter Sunday. Uh, just a reminder that if you have a prayer request or want to give or that all those links are down below the picture that you're watching right now or to the side and you just click show more and there will be all the places that you need to click. I just want you to know something, church. I love you very much. And our Lord loves you even more. The Lord is risen. Thank you for coming today. Hope you have a great day. May God bless.